What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at Lenin Community Foundation. LCF's Vital Signs Report aims to create awareness of pressing social issues in our community. And last week, we launched our latest report, once again called Be the Change. Going beyond identifying the issues, Be the Change hopes to inspire folks to take action and provide them some of the tools and resources they need to do so. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jerry White, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Western University. He's also an LCF board member and chair of LCF Social Finance Committee and Vital Signs Committee about this year's Vital Signs Report. Jerry's knowledge and experience as a researcher has been invaluable in the creation of this year's report, and I'm excited for the chance to pick his brain and learn more about Vital Signs 2021, Be the Change. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Hey, great. It's really nice to talk to you again. Yeah, good. Always great to speak with you. So for our listeners who might not know who you are, can you share a little bit about yourself and your role with Lennon Community Foundation? Sure can. I'm a professor emeritus uh, uh, from sociology at Western. Um, I was a researcher and a teacher, sort of dean for 30 years, um, working mainly on the research side with Indigenous peoples in Canada and uh, a few other countries. And um, what my major interest was, was improving well-being and health. Um, I was uh, editor of an international indigenous policy journal and worked for the United Nations for a period in the 70s. And chaired the Health Professions Regulatory Council of Ontario. And uh, since leaving work, uh, my wife says that I haven't really retired because I'm working with the London Community Foundation. I um, am chair of the uh, Social Impact Financing Committee, which you guys understand, but maybe some of our uh, listeners might not, where we loan money to um, those building uh, affordable housing and uh, social entrepreneurs that have plans to uh, develop projects and businesses with significant social impact. Um, We have about $15 million out now, and we've got more really neat projects like Soho uh, downtown that we're uh, engaged with as well. I also chair the Vital Science Committee, which prepares and publishes a report that is really an assessment of uh, the state of affairs in London and uh, Middlesex County, and it advocates for positive change. What an incredible career. And uh, and on behalf of LCF, I have to say that we're very lucky to have your skill set uh, on our on our board and committee. That's for sure. And we're here to have you to talk about Vital Signs. So we recently launched Vital Signs Be the Change 2021 mm-hmm. as a follow up to last year's Vital Signs report. Can you talk a bit about the Vital Signs initiative and the latest report? Oh, sure, Diane. The Vital Signs is normally um, uh, published biannually, uh, and it comes out and it, it tries to outline the challenges that face the city. Um, this year, uh, we decided to put it out um, only one year after our last one. So it's really part two from uh, Be the Change. Um, <clears throat> and it picks up pretty much where we left off last year. Um, 
In Vital Science 2020, um, our aim was to expose the problems being faced by many people in our community because we wanted people to understand that those problems affect them as well. Uh, they, they take on, uh, they touch us all in so, so many ways. Um, we said, based on our research in that report, and as I say, we sort of start from the end of that last report, um, that poverty was a really serious problem in London. 18% um, of people uh, experience and live in poverty, and the diverse communities in, uh, in London, like the Indigenous community, faces uh, uh, almost 36%, as I remember, and the newcomer community, which we looked at, which are people who have come since 2010, that's the way we defined it, they face almost 50% uh, poverty level. So we also talked about housing in 2020, uh, because there was five, it's hard to believe, but 5,000 individuals and families are on a list waiting for affordable housing. And um, we also did a uh, study of the statistics and found out that 13% of all Londoners uh, live in what we call um, core housing need. And for people who don't understand, that means you have a place that is so small that you have so many people per room that it, you literally may have to take time uh, to sleep at different times of the day. Or, and, or you have very major re repairs that are necessary to make it livable. And, or you're paying so much rent that you can't buy groceries and other commodities. So um, we found that that 13% of people, that's a lot of people to be living in that kind of a situation. 26% of all Indigenous people and 40% of all uh, newcomers. So it's really a significant number of problems. And I won't go through everything from that report, but it gives you an idea. We looked at hunger, we looked at racism, we looked at violence, and we looked at equality. So it's a year later, Diane, and uh, we pick up the story with uh, 2021 and we try and figure out what's happened. I guess the question we asked ourselves on the committee and the staff people that are working on this is, we should try and identify if there's been any change because we painted a pretty bleak picture. And the problem, Diane, is that we did identify there's a change. It's worse. It's worse because the pandemic ripped the lid off and it exposed the systemic problems. And it's like where somebody fans a flame and they grow bigger, that's what the pandemic did. Yeah, and I can imagine that. So how is this report different from last year's? The report, different from last year's, it's quite significantly actual. Uh, uh, and that's a great question because instead of being a report of the problems, it um, looks at the situation and it says, it's time to be acting. It's not time to be talking. You know, we've told you. Everybody around and the organizations have told us what's wrong. Now, this year and going forward, we have to do something. I talked about the issues are similar in this report, and I can uh, give you some uh, commentary on that. But we do set out what we call a new direction. And uh, it says, don't just say what's wrong. Uh, let's figure out what we can do about it. And we make calls to people to engage in social change. Um, and it provides people with tools to help them. You know, friends, if you're listening, this report is not just numbers. It calls on you to take action and it gives you some tools to be able to actually do that. It's called Be the Change, and that's a request for you, people who are listening. 
all of us, let's get out and do something. Because we said essentially that now's the time um, to get uh, get at the root causes of homelessness and housing insecurity. It's time to dismantle uh, systemic inequalities. It's time to take on forms of gender-based uh, discrimination and violence. And it's time to find equitable funding and access to quality education. We want to build a resilient food system. And I guess I, I should just quiet down for a second. I get too excited about this. But in short, I would say the tone is totally different. It's a more of a let's get going. So, Jerry, what are some of the highlights from this year's report? You know, what are, what's the data telling you so far? Um, I said that uh, earlier that um, things are getting worse. And if, if we take uh, just a couple of examples, uh, it might answer your question about highlights. Uh, if we take housing, for example, um, there's another thousand families and individuals that have been added to the 5,000 member list uh, of affordable housing seekers. Um, we report things like surveys done by Lifespin. Um, they found 77% of the people that they surveyed in uh, low-income tenants that they surveyed in uh, London and Middlesex reported that their rental units needed significant repairs, 77%. Um, last month alone, uh, 3,000 families received food hampers through the food bank. And uh, Glenn Pearson informed us that the food bank clients uh, were increased by 21% in the last uh, six months. So what we see is uh, across many of those kinds of trains, some real, uh, real differences. And I would say with sadness that um, we report uh, increasing racism and discrimination. I'm not even sure exactly where to start with that, but uh, um, hate crimes in London Middlesex uh, have risen nearly 50% in the past year. And that's according to the police data. And we know that many, many, many people do not go to the police because they don't believe it's going to do them any good or whatever else. Um, six out of 10 Indigenous citizens report being on the receiving end of racist treatment and racist remarks. Um, I think probably the most deeply uh, disturbing, of course, was that our community uh, witnessed uh, um, racism at its absolute worst, uh, when in June uh, 2021, a terrorist attack killed four members of the Afzal family in London. Um, on the other hand, I'm happy to say that we saw a profound uh, groundswell of support uh, and sympathy for the family, for the Muslim community. That's spectacular. But that act still took place. Um, we report that uh, just as Indigenous uh, communities continue to face uh, immense uh, troubles um, and historical impacts because of um, the discovery of thousands and thousands of little bodies, uh, and those thousands were added to 4,100 that were known. These are unknown, 4,100 little children uh, that died in residential schools. Those have been verified. Um, our indigenous neighbors like um, uh, Oneida, they've been under boil water uh, for a long term, and there's no sign. There's no sign that it's gonna it's gonna go away. They have no access to clean water, and 
the our, our other neighbors, uh, uh, Chippewa and the Thames, have just come off of uh, of boil water. And I think one of our um, friends of the foundation, Ray Delirious, talked to us about seriously how uh, uh, London and area are to blame for part of that. So. Um, we try and talk about a whole series uh, of things, particularly, let's say, gender. Um, another highlight is, is the uh, problem facing uh, uh, gender equality. Um, ANOVA, um, amazing organization that we've worked with over the years, has seen an 11, 117, I should say, percent increase in their, um, in their clients in contacts in this year and 44% increase in the length of stay in their shelters. These are monster, monster increases. And similarly, the London Abused Women's Centre has also reported a 45% increase. Um, and that's in their urgent care services uh, over the fiscal year. So Vital Science picks up in each of those six areas and paints a picture of serious problems that have been uh, exacerbated by the uh, by the pandemic. Interesting. Um, and so for our listeners, how are they going to digest this information? Like, it, 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 are there blogs um, associated with this vital signs? Like, how can they process all of this information? Yeah, I mean, um, this is one of the richest sections of the report. And um, I mean, we, we were, <laughs> I think the people who we all work together uh, would say we are richly blessed because we have a series of experts and leaders that have lived experience, who have put their time and energy into, uh, well, picking up our call and advising the vital science readers on um, why we need to push for change, but not only why, most important is they give their advice on how. Uh, and, and, and it's very concrete. And I'm going to apologize in advance, but I just want to walk through some of them. Um, Al Day, uh, who's executive director of Namarind, uh, speaks to us on how to really support uh, Indigenous peoples. And, you know, he challenges me. He says, uh, I have to understand that my liberation depends on his liberation. And you have this, goes down your back. It's like a little shiver. You go, that's the way we're all connected. We had, with, we're taking up things for ourselves as we take them for others. Leroy Hibbert from Luso um, says, I don't want you to be an anti-racist. I, I want you to be an anti-racist. I don't want you to be a non-racist because it's time to move past that. Um, Matthew Sereda from Thames Valley Board puts his hand on the table and he says, we really need to uh, get access for quality education for everybody in the system. And only by making the system uh, an equalizer for people, because oh, I, I try to remember what he said. He said, students have to feel safe and valued, affirmed and celebrated for the totality of who they are, their language, their culture, their clothes, how their families run. They have to feel safe in that system. And then they can achieve in school and their kids and grandkids can move forward. Um, we have three leaders speaking on food security, Glenn Pearson, the Food Policy Council, and uh, Andrew Fleet. And essentially, um, they talked about, um, well, they were talking about the incredible uh, amount of trouble that had to be sorted out in the food system. And th they're talking about 
us having to take the collective responsibility um, for uh, making sure that the system can get food to people. And that's some good news that we have in our report about those changes. But it also, they talk about uh, that the causes of food insecurity are what we have to address. Racism, inequality, no jobs. And so they turn it in two ways. One, help us with our food work, but also go and work with others to get rid of these problems. Um, oh, uh, on health and well-being, um, the addiction team there says it's a, we have to take a collective um, uh, commitment to take responsibility for mental health and well-being for the entire population because it isn't available. And they, Sister Joan Atkinson is a longtime friend of LCF, uh, and uh, she says, let's cause some good trouble. Good trouble, she calls it. Um, stop naming problems and start finding solutions. Um, on gender equity, uh, there was two. We have uh, Annalise um, Trudell from uh, ANOVA, and it's a powerful piece that speaks directly to men. And she says to, to us, here's how you should act in situations. Here's what your responsibility is. And here's how you can educate your fellow males. And it's, it's a powerful piece. Um, and Corey Allison uh, from Huron's Women's Shelter, um, she really believes we have to confront, confront uh, cultural demons and uh, begin to use love as a way to guide our actions. And uh, I, I can't do justice for, for all these people, but you can see the blogs are a real central part of here's what's going on, but 90% more, here's what you should be doing and what you can do. Definitely. And I think you definitely did a great job at piquing, I think, everyone's curiosity into uh, learning more from these this wide cross-section of uh of issue areas, right? How they all interconnect and how we can actually drive change. Um, no. Um, the other thing that I understand is that there is a data hub component to this year's Vital Signs. Would you mind expanding on that? Oh, sure. That's, I should have mentioned it earlier when you said, when you asked me about um, That's okay. uh, what's, different, <laughs> this what's different this year, because th this is quite uh Quite exciting. I mean, we've been working with um, the Community Foundation of Canada um, and many local groups to set up what we call the London, I'm not sure if the name's completely set, but the London Vital Science Community Data Hub. And um, we're populating it with uh, nationally collected data that describes our local region. And we've um, developed partnerships with local people to be able to talk to them, uh, get their information and have them um, put it into the uh, into the site as well. So um, we're populating it, as I say, with uh, that data. But I, I really think I have to make a really clear statement here is that uh, I have to caution everybody. This is a work in progress. This is going, it isn't as it is. It's something that's going to be built over time. It's designed to allow people to dig deeper on key issues. So if, if you're passionate about gender violence and, and you want to work with people, well, we, we help you figure that out. But maybe you want um, to know what you want to say to government or you you can go in through the portal and get more information and your you and your friends or your coworkers can work with that and develop ideas and policies. 
Okay, so you're saying that this data hub is still evolving, correct? Correct. Um, so how can organizations uh, contribute to or access or use this data hub? Like, is that really what it's meant for? If you could expand on that? Yeah, <clears throat> I think that it, it's best to think about in terms of layers. Um, individuals can certainly go in. Organizations and groups will probably uh, use it more research teams, others uh, preparing briefs, uh, trying to understand um, what policy changes that they want to ask for or um, lobby for. So we do have that. Um, I think there's a cont contribution level to it so that we're going to allow people to post things at that on that hub. Um, <clears throat> but that will be a little bit more controlled. So anybody can go in and use it. It'll be publicly, universally, pretty much universally accessible, I believe. And that'll be the decision. And uh, if you want to post information and data, that'll have to go through some sort of vetting project process because you can't, something could be mistaken. It could be honestly mistaken, but it could still be mistaken. And we have to make sure that there's an integrity. Of course. And that makes sense. And so there is the reality that there are barriers to collecting good data. Could you shed some light around this? Like, what are those barriers, really? Well, I mean, there's so many, uh, Diane. Uh, um, first is time timeliness. Um, in Canada, we collect, do a major data collection on things every five years, which means two or three years after that comes out, there it's dated. And um, so uh, it, it can be a little bit older than, uh, than people want. Um, the regular collections that take place on a more annual basis are smaller sample sizes, which means that uh, looking for relationships for, between things and causes and causality, things like that is a little bit more complicated. But probably the key is access. And um, much of the richest data in the country uh, would be important to assess uh, that would be important to assess is is confidential and and rightfully so right i mean um in a world of cyber crime and um, identity theft you can't have everyone all this data just available for people to dig around in so um but what happens is it can be very very difficult for researchers and others who know like who that was our business that's our, our skill level, our profession. It's difficult for us to get access. So um, people's organizations, charities, others, they have an even more complicated time uh, uh, get it. It also takes money and time to access data. And uh, you know, if you're pulling together a neighborhood group and you wanna get some ideas about what's going on in your neighborhood, that could take months for you to get access to that information. Plus you'd have to spend money out of your own pocket because you wouldn't have anything. So sometimes uh, there's a little bit of a political problems develop. For example, we collect public health data here on, um, on COVID uh, by racial group and diverse neighborhood. But the, the health unit is reluctant to just put that out because they don't want people to be stigmatized. They don't, they don't want a backlash and they want to consult. So there's all these layers that are real barriers to accessibility. Yeah. And I could see that, uh, how that would play out now. Okay. 
for our listeners, why is it so important to collect data? And like really how, and really at the root of this, how does it drive change? Oh, um, trying to think, um, you know, in a world where, hmm, this is complicated for me because um, in a world where uh, people can say there was no residential schools, in a world where people can say, you know, horse uh, dewormer can s solve your COVID problems, or if you take uh, uh, the, the vaccines, which are very safe, uh, you won't be able to get pregnant and have babies. In a world like that, um, data is really, really critical. Because what happens, it, and I, I'm going to sound like a statsy, social science geeky guy, you know, on steroids. But it's really critical that the closer we get to examining the world the way it really is, the closer we get to being able to decide properly on what to do. And you mentioned taking action earlier. And how will this report and the Vital Signs Data Hub help people take action and create change? Oh, well, I'm trying to think of where I want to start with that. Um, I think, um, as I noted before, um, the bloggers um, that have so kindly put their information forward, they give very concrete ideas. Uh, and I say very, very rich ideas um, for proposals of how people can act and where they might go, what they might be able to do. It's sort of like um, step-by-step sort of here, if you're interested in this problem, here's who you can support. Here's how you can support them. And here's where they are. And we do that too. Um, it, it, it's actually a really nice portal where if you're interested in knowing what uh, organizations are working on race-based uh, inequities or are working on religious inequities or are working on um, gender-based violence, you can go to a page, the organizations are listed there. You can click on them and boom, you're right on the website of that organization and that, that organization can tell you what their activities are, how to get involved, where to go. Uh, we also provided a template for um, people um, to help them frame letters that they might send to policymakers. Um, so, uh, I, and actually I do wanna really make a, one careful comment here. We have listed lots of fantastic organizations, but if we missed yours, if we missed if you're listening and you go, I'm not on any lists and you want to, please contact us because, uh, it, as I said before, this is really a work in progress. Excellent. Thank you for that. So the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, commonly referred to as the SDGs, play a huge role in how LCF thinks about and tracks the work that we do. Would you mind telling our audience about the SDGs and how they fit into vital signs? Certainly, um, we approach our discussion and research through the lens of the SDGs, as you say, and uh, that's like no poverty, um, zero hunger, reduced inequalities. That's three of the 17. So uh, there's a large number of them. Um, what we did is that sometime back, we looked at those 17 and we tried to localize them, which means tried to make them um, um, easy to understand about how they describe and what we might do 
uh, in the London Middlesex area. And we've worked with many organizations like uh, SDG Cities to do that uh, localization. I say that's critical because one of the SDGs is uh, preservation of ocean fish. Well, that's not something Londoners can do on a day-to-day -day basis. So we do, we pick up the ones that uh, fit us. And um, our hope is, I guess the easiest way to understand it is that over time, by promoting the SDGs as a way to understand the problems, um, all of the organizations and people that want to do good can start speaking the same language, work on the same, uh, in the same direction on problems, and we'll be able to share research, share ideas, um, develop joint strategies and will be more effective. So the uh, SDGs uh, are, are a potential unifier and a potential um, uh, increase, uh, something that can increase the uh, impact of our work. Just in, to end that, uh, SDGs for the London uh, Community Foundation are important in our, all our work, in our granting side and in our social investment loans. Um, for example, we ask loan applicants to describe which SDG uh, they are trying to support uh, achieving. Is it food security? Is it positive climate change or whatever? And, and we measure the social good by looking at the potential impact of applicants on the SDG that they, they target. So it allows us to have some consistency. It allows us to help organizations and entrepreneurs and affordable housing people help them develop their plans and uh, projects. Excellent. And I look forward to seeing those connections uh, with all the uh, reports that are coming out and even with the granting. Um, so you've spent decades studying Indigenous policy, health, and well-being. Through this work, what have you learned about taking action and creating change? Yeah, well, that's a that's a really um, that's another big question. I talk too much already, so you shouldn't throw those ones at me. But I, one of the things that you have to learn uh, in terms of working with Indigenous communities and peoples is uh, it requires a great deal of time and. That's because you have to build real partnerships. So there's many reasons why you have to build partnerships and take time. Uh, a lot of them have to do with the fact that uh, uh, research over the last uh, 150 years has been driven by colonial attitudes. Um, quite frankly, um, it, there was no partnerships. There was no return to Indigenous people for uh, their participation. Uh, there was theft of their knowledge, um, um, top down, no real input by the people being studied uh, as to how, what the policies should look like that come out of that study. I could go on and on. Uh, and I don't exaggerate. I mean, I did an editorial not that long ago where I exposed that there were nutrition studies in the residential schools. They actually reduced the poor children's diets down till their calories to see how low they could feed them before they started getting sick. Now, that's the kind of research I'm talking about. So that takes, now you wanna go and do work. People go, well, what, what's going on? Who are you, where you go? And so you really have to build that joint thing. So that's what I learned um, a, a lot in, in my work. Um, and we also decided that uh, one of the things that we could do is try and change the face of research across uh, 
um, I would say the world, but that's gigantic place. But uh, through the journal that we founded and the Aboriginal policy research conferences that we held in Europe and North America, we were able to bring together Indigenous peoples, um, knowledge carriers, re Indigenous researchers, along with other uh, non-Indigenous researchers and learn from each other literally dozens and dozens of um, uh, partnerships across Australia, New Zealand, Europe, if, anywhere you want to think about were built. And all of them are doing sort of gold standard research and they're doing it the right way. So now we're seeing a huge amount of things coming out that's based on these partnerships and actually analyzes what the real problems are. And so we can get some real positive changes taking place. Excellent. And so do you have any examples of collective action influencing policy decisions? Because really, that's what really fundamentally drives change. I would love to hear your perspective on that. Uh, um, I'm just trying to think. Okay, there's there's all sorts of ones. I mean, uh, um, I'm pleased to say, for example, that um, Archaeologists at Western are going to team up with uh, Chip on the Thames um, to begin doing um, a search of the residential school that's just miles from downtown uh, London. Uh, and that kind of cooperation, it took time and energy, but it was really important. And it was based on making the demands around residential schools. It was made, uh, whether it was the uh, uh, indigenous black and people of color rallies and other things. Uh, this is what's led to these kinds of cooperation. I mentioned that um, uh, we were able to people within the food distribution system in London, as well as people running the neighborhoods. We had a serious problem in food distribution to the needy and to the people who have uh, food insecurities. Um, people have been arguing with each other, working on each other, bringing ideas to each other. And uh, this year, that uh, the last couple of years, that system has just absolutely uh, streamlined. There's new, uh, concretely, there's nine new centers, I believe, uh, with um, four uh, YMCAs and five uh, neighborhood centers that are delivering food to tens of thousands of people um, uh, in London. Um, it wasn't very long ago that um, 10,000 students walked out in protest from Western classrooms against gender-based uh, gender violence. And that has led to new resources being put into place, um, deeper trial of understanding in terms of training for people. And that's training. I mean, really learning what is yes, what is no, what's right, what's wrong, how to report, what you can do. So that was a direct action that led to changes within a very short period of time, at least the opportunity to make those. I think you'd agree with me that the indigenous and uh, black and um, what's it, indigenous black and people of color movement has put racism and, and discrimination in, at the very forefront of discussions across dinner tables and everywhere else. I mean, I run across in my neighborhood, people saying to me, gee, every time I talk to someone, they just talking about how we were racist and and uh, is this going to be forever? I said, with a smile on my face, absolutely forever. This is why we have to make those changes. Um, but I think one thing to understand about change and, and 
it's important because we're calling on people to try and make it, is that it's not always linear and it's not always instant. In fact, most often it's not. It's a process, not an act. And so we have to understand those processes and understand when you're making progress and when you're just spinning tires in a sort of a mud flat. And um, I mean, if you think about it uh, right now, um, we see uh, the culmination of decades of, of fighting, arguing, um, pushing, um, testifying um, to allow Indigenous peoples themselves to control child welfare uh, in their communities. The old systems that took kids out of their communities, put them in other cultural groups and out of their families into other families that didn't know anything about their backgrounds. Um, it just did not work. And the six. So now we're not going to see the 60s scoop again. And people like um, Cindy Blackstock, who created the uh, First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, she pulled together a few people and said, we're going to fight for this. And we're going to fight by going and protesting. We're going to fight by presenting research. We're going to fight by going to court. We're going to build the organizations within First Nations communities. So child welfare organizations were supported. That's now those are now those things are now able to take up the work and people are changing their uh, policies province by province so there's all sorts of exciting things i could get i could just keep going forever but fishing rights and maritimes were gained through collective action um they're being challenged so part of the process but we're going to make sure that that goes ahead um calls to compensate families who suffered um during the residential schools I think the, uh, I mean, I worked on a project in Russia with um, uh, Russian Association of Indigenous Peoples of the North. The pipe, uh, the oil companies were slapping down pipelines. They were blocking uh, reindeer herders from moving from their summer grounds to their winter grounds. So the reindeer were dying. So we had a conference. We were lobbying in government in Russia is not exactly as easy to lobby as here, but uh, we were able to get some policy changes made in that. So I think VS um, Vital Science Report uh, highlights local issues that people uh, reading our report can uh, really relate to and um, and get involved with. Mm-hmm. And so for let's say the average person, and I'm and I'm thinking back to your comment about your neighbor who approached you and said, you know, we've been doing racist things. Is this topic going to be on forever? Because mm-hmm. we are talking about some big big, important uh, topics. What can the individual who's sitting back in their living room, listening to this podcast, who doesn't feel as connected to collective change, right, to collective forces, what can they do to drive change? You know, one person at a time even. Yeah, I wouldn't want, I'm I'm not going to put you on the spot, but that is uh, one thing that you actually end up uh, helping people with, right? Is, is somebody who's looking for donor. Uh, if somebody is talks to me, I would send them to, to you as one person so they could talk about, gee, what they may be able to do in terms of setting up a foundation and having money every year to be able to put in a group's hands or, or help with something. Um, so there's, there's those types of things. Our bloggers talk about Here's the people that, uh, here's the organizations that are doing work about um, educating people. So if you want to go and um, devote a day or, uh, or hours or weeks 
helping set things up, then you go and talk to them and they will put you to work and you will be within a very short period of time doing something that makes your heart feel good um, as well as helps the, the city. And if you think about that multiplied by thousands of times, it doesn't take long to turn that into a, a really a big wave, right? And so there's also a, a who to approach about what they're doing that's not right. Governments, um, bureaucracies, they don't get it right all the time. They don't get it wrong all the time. But they do need to hear from people uh, who have an understanding. Um, so there's ways of learning about things. There's ways of using that knowledge and how you move. So those are the kinds of things that I think the average person can do. That's great. And it's such a simple way, right? Just just start dipping your toe in these areas, right? So finally, what do you think Lenin can be and how do you think we can get there together? I have to ask this question. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I thought you might uh, because we're talking about be the change, change to what, right? Um, I, you got to give me just a second. In, in the last 25 years and particularly maybe the last 12 to 15, we've seen our community just get more and more diverse. Um, we've seen that the differences grow in different languages and cultures and ways of doing. It's, it's really, uh, I think it's a dramatically positive thing for our, for our city. And for forever before that, we had Indigenous neighbors in the city. Um, that have faced discrimination and other problems um, that's faced by the growing um, diversity of people. So I think we've always seen access to jobs and to training and um, it's never been equitable and it's always been frankly getting worse uh, over the last little while. So that's the dire um, piece that I, I sit and I get um, I get kind of sad about it and I, you know, I'm not the angry type, but I have a little anger about it because I've seen things getting just worse and people really, really not doing well. That all said, I think we're at a, uh, what I would call a social precipice. And I think that's where I really see a growing number of people, um, who see the problems, but also understand that we have to, uh, if we don't act on them, they're going to pull us down. They're going to pull all that's good down. And I think there are growing numbers of people who understand that um, equality and, uh, and opportunity is the, is the real goal that will drive the kind of change that will make everybody's life better and move it forward. So we're on that precipice and I think we're more and more people are understanding that. So I think um, when we, um, I'm not usually emotional, but um, when we publish uh, Vital Signs 2031 in 10 years, I think uh, we have a good chance of, uh, of being able to call it, um, see the change. Wow. Um, wow. And maybe talking about in our blogs and our, our links, thanks for being that change. So 
I truly, I truly, I'm the world's most optimistic, but I, it's, uh, I truly believe that uh, that sort of could be our goal. And, and I think we can, we'll be, we'll be able to do it. That was so beautiful. Um, and you're right. It does take a well-informed community to drive change. And that's the hope with vital signs. The more we understand how our community is changing, and the different ways we can engage and do all of that, it's it's our hope, too, that we can look back when we reach 2031, that it's see the change. So very well said. I love that. That's a beautiful way to end this uh, uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Jerry, for your time and your leadership in pushing these issues forward and synthesizing it, I think, in a way that it's easy for people to process and digest, too. So thank you. And I just want to say thank you very much for you taking your time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And thank all the people who've put so much energy into Vital Signs. Um, it's been so important. Uh, you know, we have staff like Nick and, and Vanessa uh, that have put just dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of extra hours. And so uh, I just want to make sure I want to thank uh, the people that are really behind the quality of this, uh, this report. Thank you. And a, and a shout out and an encouragement to uh, those community partners and agencies out there to also uh, look at vital signs and contribute to the data too. So yeah, this is great. Thank you so much, Jerry, for okay. all your work. Have all a good the day. best. You too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash whatlondoncanbe. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.